Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We came in and said, all right, well, we're going to be in the same industry as you, but we're going to do it entirely different because you guys have captured this market. You're the kings of donuts. Well, we want to come in and be the entertainers of donuts. You know, we want the weird flavors and the fun social media things, and we want a a sort of different swing on it. You have to know you can win. You have to think you can win. You have to feel you can win. So said famous boxer Sugar Ray Leonard. Now, I didn't get to book him today, but I have the next best thing. RVA's sugar daddy, Ian Kelly on the making of his donut empire. Stay with us. Full Disclosure is sponsored by Elwood Thompson's, our favorite market here in Virginia at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets. I do love the crew, and I'd love to give a shout-out to the owner, Rick Hood, Sean Pumphrey, the manager, Marquise Jones. Uh, This place is just an extension of family for me. You'll see me there almost every day for breakfast, enjoying the coffees, enjoying the breakfast hot bar, uh, the chia bars. I am all over that place culturally as a consumer, as a fanboy, and I'm so honored to have them sponsoring the show. Visit them at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me in studio, what a privilege, Ian Kelly, founder and CEO of Sugar Shack Donuts, the Virginia donut joint that's gone from one to a dozen locations in five years, in less than five years, and now there's even an offshoot called Luther Burger. Uh, It's a spectacular donut. My pancreas has worked overtime on hundreds of them. (laughs) Sir, how are you? I'm well. How are you this morning? Finally, I've only been asking you for three, four years to come on this show. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm glad to be here today, though. No, but you clearly work like a beast. Like, even me, like, pulling you aside to get coffee or something, you're running between locations. I mean, I I met you at the original location near Maggie Walker Senior High um, in, uh, what is it, Jackson Ward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Carver. Carver, Carver RVA, and it was an old used car dealership. Can you take me back to the inception of this story in 2013? Uh, Yeah, we actually started in 2012 trying to come up with this idea. I had uh, been a chef out in Seattle and was kind of burning out on the fine dining 16-hour day industry. Uh, So I was trying to come up with a concept that I could have a family and a wife, you know, and maybe some kids one day kind of thing. Uh, So I came back to Richmond in 2012, and I started working on these different ideas about what can I do that's uh, a little bit more casual. And came up with this concept. It was going to be donuts, burgers, and bagels. And I was originally going to call it Dodo's Donuts. And I had a little design I did with Dodo birds hanging. And uh, I was coaching soccer at Maggie Walker while I was waiting to figure out how to do this. And the, the real estate agent at the car lot across the street from Maggie Walker Governor School hung a for lease sign up. And I walked across the street, looked at it, and said, I'll take it. Take the sign back down. Uh, and that was it. I mean, Sugar Shack started right there. And you know, we started work in 2012 and had it open in June of 2013. Was that ever a legit... Uh, shady car dealership, or was it a front for something? I'm convinced it was a front. I'm convinced it's a front for the tow truck company. It just makes a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it was a front the for the there. tow truck company, but it was a very weird thing. I mean, they had cars on that lot for years that I coached on and off at that school, and the same cars would never move. I never saw customers go in and out. Uh, I remember when we went to do some demo on the building, we found five restrooms. Um, which makes you question why a small 1,200-square-foot building needed five restrooms. But, you know, we tore them all out and cleaned the place up and kind of moved on and didn't question it ever again. So, uh, yeah, I I think it was a shady front for something. But, you know, now Carver is a completely different neighborhood, and it's, you know, people are moving in left and right, and the community is engaged and happy and I'm happy. I'm thrilled with that location. So you have restaurant in your DNA. You've been here. You've been across the country. You've worked with the various restaurant people you love. You know, you told me about Ed Vasayo and when I first came here to go to Mama Zoo Mm -hmm. and some of the places that you frequent. Um, Why donuts? What was it about the economics of donuts? And uh, tell me about the capital raise, like how you raise money for this figment of an idea. (laughs) Hard work. Um, You know, I had done fine dining most of my life. I had done some smaller sort of, uh, you know, seafood places that were more about fast pace and quantity, but the, the majority of my career was fine dining. And I was always surrounded by drugs and alcohol and rock and roll and, you know, all the scandal that comes with restaurants. And it wasn't the life that I enjoyed. You know, it was fun when you're in your young 20s, but it's just not a fun life as you keep getting older and older. Um, and I had always wanted to be a dad and I had always wanted to have a family and, you know, go that route. So sort of the idea of donuts was half of it was my love for, um, working with dough. I enjoyed making my own pasta dough. I enjoyed making my own pizza dough. And, you know, at all the restaurants I worked at, I would kind of dabble in those things. 
uh, and I like doing my own pastries. So I always sort of had an interest in that side of the, uh, the culinary world, but I never got to do anything with it. So then, you know, you come back to this concept and it's all right, well, we can be a five, six day a week donut shop. I can do the pastry stuff I want to do, but I can bring in my gourmet experience and make really exquisite glazes that go on the donuts. You know, if I want to make a raspberry and sage and bourbon glaze that would mimic something I did at a French restaurant, I can do that, but I can still do it with the pastry background. Uh, and then I can do it in that seven to three time frame. So maybe I can actually start dating and eventually have a family and kids. So it was sort of was uh, me wanting to take all the things I was missing in my life and meld it into one concept. You had a lot of love to give uh, <laughs> both to, to pastries and your beautiful wife, Tanya, who's in yes. the studio with us. Yes. Yeah. Tanya's your your here children today. are beautiful too. Gosh, I feel like you're part of the extended RVA family. Here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank uh, you. I, but here's the deal. Uh, I, I remember, you know, the obviously the donut of everybody's childhood is either a Mr. Donut, uh, Dunkin' Donuts, to a lesser extent, you know, Krispy Kreme, which has had a resurgence. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts, as we know, especially over the past 15 years, has had this iteration through private equity where, you know, now that's just Dunkin' Brands. They emphasize, mm -hmm. I think, egg white flats much more than they do their donuts <laughs> right, and a lot right. more in terms of coffee sales. So they had kind of turned away from the craft of the original draw. Uh, but still others would say, was there something appealing about the margins of donuts, of the economic returns, or were you just so passionate that you could make like a maple glazed bacon donut and they weren't doing it? Yeah, it wasn't the margins for me. I was way more excited about getting to play and the things I'd get to do with donuts. Uh, but again, it was supposed to be donuts, burgers, and bagels. So I sort of had this rounded concept where the donuts were fun and they brought people in the door. The burgers made me money and the bagels were sort of just a side thing I was going to do because I was going to play with them. Uh, we just never got to the the burgers or bagels, and we do loop back to the burgers, which we'll talk about. But, um, you know, we just never got to that point. The margins on donuts are good, but it's just like eggs. I mean, it's a great margin on an egg, but you got to sell a 1,000 eggs a day for it to be worth it. You know, I think that's a lot of people avoid that sort of diner, fast-paced uh, breakfast menus. Um, but for me, it was a balance. You know, I looked at it and said, can I have a job that pays me an okay salary, just good enough to be a normal everyday father, family man, while simultaneously doing what I love to do? And this seemed like that sort of concept when I wrote the business plan for it. It was the perfect way for me to get away from fine dining and get into a better environment. So you me. wrote a business plan for this. Oh, yeah. yeah. How did it work? So when, when the light bulb finally went off and you decided full speed ahead, I'm here, I found the, the wife of my dreams and I'm going to become a family man, did you go out and seek investors? How did you do a capital raise? Well, I wrote the business plan uh, over the course of probably six months. I had had a surgery, um, sports-related surgery, and I was laid up in bed. And anybody that knows me knows that when I commit to something, I sort of geek out over it, and it's, I dive into an obsessively weird point. Uh, so I wrote this business plan that ended up being over 100 pages long, and I had research on every donut industry business, every coffee business, you know, where the economy goes, um, how, does, how do donuts do when the economy is great versus how do donuts do when the economy is bad. Uh, so I had this drastically massive plan that was ready to go. Uh, nobody was interested in it. Nobody would read the business plan. And I think people looked at it and they were like, well, I don't need to read the business plan because it's donuts. You're never going to make it selling donuts. But could it have been a Shark Tank type thing where you walked in with some of your prototype donuts just to wow their socks off and they're like, I got to... I mean, did you I have mean, to do that? No, no. I, I went to some of the people that had sort of been my um, uh, mentors around town. Uh, and I asked people, you know, are you interested in doing this? And they'd all kind of shake their head and say, look, we believe in you and everything, you know, you've worked with us or for us, or we've been to your restaurants and they're great, but I just don't see donuts working. Um, I had a couple family members I was able to borrow 5,000 here from on a 60 day loan. I had a very, very good friend of mine from soccer that loaned me 5,000 and was like, I need it back in 30 days. Uh, you know, some credit cards. I finally... Uh, convinced um, uh, M&T Bank. I finally convinced them to give me a loan, uh, and it was $30,000. They gave me a $30,000 SBA-backed small business loan. Uh, terrible terms, you know, but it was the best I could do. And then with some help from the landlord of the building that, you know, he helped with some of the build-out because he wanted to do something with it, you know, we were able to get it open for nothing. I mean, we opened that original shop for maybe fifty grand all in. Uh, you know, we didn't have enough product. I don't know if you, well, you I don't, you, I remember people would, there'd be sacks of flour right? and people would just chronically run out. And by then the, the word of mouth was really raging around town and I'd show up and, and, you know, I'd bring out a town guest and I'd take them there and we'd clean you out. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we only made it four days. We didn't even have enough product to really be open, but we didn't anticipate what came at us, you know. So we opened the doors, and four days later, we were sold out of everything. Um, and we closed down and called some of our vendors. Uh, you know, we got some people to get some stuff in with a little bit of money that we had made over four days. And then actually, you know, our biggest saving grace was country-style donuts, you know. Uh, we called those guys up, and we said, hey, we're out of this, this, and this, and I can't get it in time to reopen. And they were like, hey, we got you. you that know? blows my mind because before you let me say there was this divey little place anybody who comes into richmond uh, airport ric there's this pothole stricken place not far from the airport that people go to i think it's a lebanese family that owns it it's it's it feels like you're walking into 1978 and you'll see airline workers you'll see businessmen traveling and they come in and they get this incredible donut i would have thought that they would have been immediately threatened by you like you're taking their milkshake you know, I think that's a fear that anybody that comes into an industry has in the restaurant business is, are you, are you upsetting the people that you're competing against? Dixie Donuts, who was uh, open at that time, came to us the first day we were open and congratulated us and said, call us if you ever need anything. I mean, they were as nice as could be. Country style, when we called them and said, we need help, they said, we've got you. We'll, we'll take care of you. And to this day, I mean, my wife and I were at an event last week uh, and we ran into the country style family and... It was great. I mean, we talked for an hour. You know, we all are now Facebook friends. We were talking about going out to dinner sometime soon. It's not a competition. In fact, they even thanked us for what we've done to the donut industry because we we brought more attention to Richmond for donuts, and they went and opened a second location. You know, everybody's done great from it. See, I would have poured concrete mix in the flour that I like. No, I'm just <laughs> No, they are fantastic people. And, you know, the reality of it is they pioneered Richmond. I mean, yeah. they were the first ones here. They were the ones that sort of created the game in Richmond and gave me something to work off of because we are a very different donut. You know, like you said, they, they it's sort of that 1978 feel. And I think I, I, I could be wrong. I believe they've been around since about the 60s, you know, maybe under some different names and different um, – locations, but that family has been doing it in Richmond forever, and they put out an incredibly good product that is good, you know, five years ago, it's good today, it'll wow. be good in five years, you know. Um, but we came in and said, all right, well, we're going to we're gonna be in the same industry as you, but we're going to do it entirely different because you guys have captured this market. You're the kings of donuts, you know. Well, we want to come in and be the entertainers of donuts, you know. We mm. want the weird flavors and the fun, uh, you know, social media things, and we want a, a sort of different swing on it, you know. So um, you did raise the money, and this is an opportunity and a peril in that, you know, you have problems with working capital and you're running out. Mm -hmm. And at some point, that must suggest to your investors or prospective people out there, these guys are good for the money. It's throwing off cash, but they need to build out the infrastructure <laughs> sufficiently for yeah, us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we got that first one up and running, and I didn't have any aspirations for a second location at all. You know, we were just focused on the first one. Um, but we had a guy, uh, Rob Krupika, who was a delegate uh, in the Northern Virginia, D.C., sort of Alexandria area. And he came to us and said, hey, we want to do one. You know, I want to open a sugar shack. And at first I kind of shrugged it off and was like, you know, I, I don't know. You know, we're good with the one. Uh, he came back again and again and again, and he knew some of the same people I knew. Uh, and it just kind of took off from there. You know, we said, Rob, that's great. You know, if you're committed and you want to do this, we're on board too. And so he went and did it. And then... Uh, I had some local investors that I knew that said, hey, we want to do a second sugar shack here in Richmond, the one over on Parham Road. And let me tell everybody, that was for the longest time an abandoned gas station. <laughs> I thought there were there were brownfields issues. Um, it, you know, there was no hope for it. I thought you, you just raise it. Maybe you put a bank or a Walgreens or something over it. But you guys really deftly – I mean, you didn't have to reinvent the wheel with that. You um, – I, I remember you were very, uh, what was it? You were borrowing some wood panels or from people who had crates? <laughs> yes. We would drive through the alleyways to find pallets, old pallets, um, because we didn't want to just paint the walls. You know, So we would literally drive through all the alleyways and throw pallets in the back of pickup trucks and drive them out to the field right next to the The wooden store, pallets right? that are used. Wow. Yeah. And they would be in terrible shape or great shape, and we would sit there and cut them and pull all the nails out and sand them down and stain them, and that's how we did the decor for our first few shops. And Do you have contracting or construction <laughs> blood? No. no, really. Who could you lean? Because that costs money, too. Uh, no, no. My father was an architect, and he was. we lived out in Palatan growing up, and he was one of those people that believed that I had to know how to do everything. So I'm, I consider myself mildly good at a lot of things. You know, I can change the oil in a car, I can mildly build things. You know, if my kid wants a treehouse, I can build a treehouse, but I'm not excellent at any of those things. I just, my dad raised me that way. 
Wow. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Ian Kelly, founder and CEO of Sugar Shack Donuts, which is now a, a dozen strong. There's another in construction. There are two Luther Burgers. Uh, he is a man in demand. They're all across Virginia. I've even had a, a friend come through who uh, was watching his son play lacrosse, I believe, at, at U of R, and he said that he would like to have an investor take you to Hilton Head. I was like, I don't know, man. This guy don't return my calls, but uh, <laughs> you could try sending him a fax. Uh, tell me about uh, this is a this is a, a pivotal event because I tell the story, and I don't know how apocryphal it is, but for all you listening out there. There were a handful of guys, I think they were loosely related to the Martin Agency, the advertising firm, that in uh, 2014, they sat around and they're like, you know what, man, Dave Grohl, freaking Foo Fighters, man, they haven't been here since 1998. And they got together and they they built something like a social media dare. It wasn't Kickstarter. It was a similar platform to say that if you guys come here, we will sell tickets in ex- escrow and build this notional concert. Long story short, it, Dave Grohl saw it. He's like, yeah, yeah man, I'll come. And uh, it sold out. And I always say to everybody else, Richmond didn't take full advantage of the fact that this is arguably the most sex- successful on-demand kind of A-list concert in history. You cut out, you cut out uh, Ticketmaster. But let me tell you about my pal Ian Kelly at Sugar Shack. He had one location, and like a scene out of Almost Famous, the movie, he shows up uh, behind the stage at the National Theater with a box of donuts, and uh, the roadies, the the bouncer wants to deck him, and Dave Grohl's <laughs> like, "No, man, he's cool, he's cool," and he shows him the Sugar Shack donuts. He eats it, loves it, Instagram it. Next thing you know, Dave uh, Ian Kelly is driving up his truck full of Sugar Shack donuts to the MTV Video Music Awards. Next thing you know, he has a dozen Sugar Shack. Is that is that true? <laughs> it's it's a very exaggerated stretch of how we got. How did it happen? Um, I was bouncing around on social media one day. I love to do free social media stuff. You know, it, it, my entire company is based on that. And Andrew had come to me and basically said, like, hey, we're going to bring the Foo Fighters here. We got to sell all these tickets. Are you interested in it? And he needed to sell a certain amount of tickets for just to in, gain interest in Richmond. Uh, but then he needed a much bigger number to be able to convince the Foo Fighters to come. He had a goal in mind. And I said, look, I'll take $5,000 worth of tickets. You know, right off the bat, I, we didn't even hesitate. I just said, I'll take $5,000 worth of tickets, uh, which was f- equivalent to 100 tickets. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with them. I didn't have a, a concept in mind. I just said, look, I'm going to help you boost your goal, and then I'm going to get rid of these tickets, whether it's staff or social media. And it immediately took off. You know, I, I bought the tickets and then like the next day, I think that sales for him quadrupled and within like a week, they were completely sold out. Uh, and he accomplished his goal and then, you know, radio shows started talking about it and Dave Roll started talking about it and showing interest. And I think he even tweeted at one point, like Dave Roll put something out there that said, you know, hey guys, this small group of guys in Richmond, Virginia just sold a show that we haven't even booked. You know, how awesome is that? Uh, and it just took off from there. So I said, look, I got a hundred tickets. I got to do something with it. I took 50 of them and I gave them to my employees, um, right off the bat. I said, look, they deserve to go just as much as anybody. And I gave some to family and friends and I had 50 left, you know, when I was done giving away the first half of the tickets. And I said, we're going to make this a really cool way for us to connect with Richmond on these 50 tickets at a sold out show. And so we started holding contests, all Facebook-driven contests. We did uh, Hardy, uh, Hardywood Brewery let us do a donut throwing competition in their parking lot, which sounds crazy. It is the hardest thing ever to throw a donut, you know? So we had people, probably 150 people that came out to see how far they could throw a donut. Uh, we did scavenger hunts. We did art competitions. Um, how fast can you eat six donuts? And we timed people. Uh, we had one really cool one where you had to cover a Dave Roll song or a Foo Fighters song. We probably had 50 submissions, probably 15 of them were really good. Uh, and we had two that, you know, we spent probably three days with all the staff watching it, voting between these two finalists. And they were incredible. I mean, they were almost as good as Dave Roll's versions with just local guys picking up their guitars or even families or kids and everybody trying to do the same thing. Uh, and it, we gave them all away. I mean, it was our biggest, most successful Facebook social media push we've ever had. We did. Were the Foo Fighters themselves pushing it out at the same time? Was it hashtagged? See, when did you get to ride that? When did you get to kind of hitch onto that caboose? Yeah, so the Foo Fighters, after the show was done, they made an announcement. And I remember the first time I saw it on Twitter, they made an announcement like, hey, Richmond, we're ready to rock. You know, and I remember that was like chills through your body. It was a great moment for us because this small group of Martin Agency guys, and I think a couple of them weren't through Martin Agency, but connected, put together something that was sort of a if you build it, they will come concept. 
I said, I believe in your concept. And then the Foo Fighters said, well, we believe in your concept too. We're coming. And I jumped on it immediately. We started sharing the, you know, the tweet from Foo Fighters. And I remember it, people just went crazy for it. It was on a radio in South Africa where Dave Grohl did an interview about how Richmond changed music forever because they sold a show that didn't exist. And we didn't own that. I feel like you were the person who most owned it. At least in my in my words, when I sing your praises, when I go on the road. So what happened? Did you show up behind the concert venue with a box of donuts? Uh, no, True or we, false. False. So, oh, it sounded like a scene in Almost Famous. <laughs> Yo, okay. Dave. So I have pictures of Dave Roll, uh, and he's on stage doing his um, uh, you know warm up mic check and everything. And there's a picture of Sugar Shack next to him on stage, and he has a maple bacon donut in his hand. And I still have the photo. It's one of my favorite photos. It's blurry because it's from the balcony. But uh, they were very sort of closed-doored about the event. Um, Very few people got in. You know, I got in early, but not early enough to be a part of it. How did the donuts get backstage? Uh, The guys that set the event up, Andrew and and his friends, uh, you know, they were in all day. So they were with him on and off all day. They interviewed him. They did some video work with him. And I was able to get with them and say, hey, here's a bunch of donuts. Take them in. Uh, and they did. So they took him in and and had him there in the green room or wherever else all day. So what did I witness on Instagram? Was it Dave Grohl holding up a donut or did you have that portrait painted? Oh, no. So that was actually a part of our art competition was people had to draw Dave Grohl with a donut. Uh, and we had some that were incredibly realistic sort of charcoal drawings. We had watercolors. But there's one that was it made it huge on Instagram. And it's this really good photo of Dave Grohl with a guitar and a headset on. And he's got a donut in his hand smiling real big. Uh, so we had a lot of that kind of stuff that just went out into the social media world and people just loved it. They went nuts for it. So through hustle, you're buying what you must be able to value this kind of, you know, it's earned or bought publicity. And that's through, you know, a week of hustle Mm -hmm. and you fronting a notional $5,000, maybe 50 of which of these tickets of the hundred tickets you could, you could offer as a bonus to employees who really helped you and another 50 you were able to sell easily. Yeah, I mean, it was it more than paid for itself. You know, the if we were to say half of it, the twenty five hundred dollars worth of it that I gave to employees, that's employee appreciation, and I'm all for that. Uh, so really, I only spent. I look at it as I spent twenty five hundred dollars on marketing, and you know, we've had people throw numbers out there before and say, look, that was thirty five thousand dollars worth of marketing, or that was a hundred thousand dollars worth of marketing. I don't really have any way to put a number on what it was, but you know, I remember one of our posts was one hundred seventy five thousand interactions on Facebook. And at the time, we were just over a year old. We had one location. You know, we were a nobody donut shop getting 175,000 views, which is huge. You know, I've never been able to replicate that many views. Take me to the next step up. What is the next big event that you remember in your evolution? I uh, know that um, social media was an en- enormous part of this, mm-hmm. right? I mean, for better or for worse, you used it to your advantage, kind of the leverage and the jujitsu. But we've seen also that people come in, you have to deal with disgruntled customers that reflexively expect you to give out free donuts on donut day. I remember <laughs> you had a, you had an incident with someone who took a, a, a used a, an avatar of a, a gentleman who had passed away, and, and there was a back and forth on Twitter. I mean, walk me through uh, Yelp, for better or for worse. Yeah, Yelp is sort of the bane of my my existence for social media. Um, I don't believe in it. I think that it is a place where people mostly go to complain, not to compliment restaurants. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's some good value in it, but I just don't think it's a critical way for customers to actually critique a restaurant. I think it's a bad way to do it. Um, but yeah, we've had people go on Yelp and create fake profiles, and whether it's ex-employees, competitors, um, you know, just some guy that's disgruntled for the day. And we had one guy that just wouldn't let down. I mean, he was one star reviewing me and, you know, just bashing me for a week. I did a Google image search on it to try to figure out. I knew it was a fake profile. I did a Google image search, and it came up. It was an obituary photo from, you know, a 72-year-old guy in <laughs> Illinois or something. You know, and you point it out to Yelp, and they kind of shrug it off, and they're like, well, I'm sorry we don't get involved in day-to-day interactions with customers and businesses. Um, but, you know, that's across all platforms. Uh, you know, Yelp is probably the worst one. Google's way more transparent because they have to use a real name, email address, photo. Facebook is my favorite. You know, it's their real people. You can't fake a Facebook review. Um, and people are seem to be way more honest and happy on it. You know, it, the complaints we get on Facebook, it's very easy for me to very quickly say, I agree, we messed up, you know, I'm embarrassed and I'm really sorry that this is the way it went, but here's how we're going to fix it. And 99 times out of 100 on Facebook, they appreciate the response, Mm. you know, and they're back in there within a couple of days. Um, But social media and restaurant critique websites and all that, they are very difficult for 
restaurant and owners to keep up with. And you can't just go give free meals to everybody that was unhappy with one element of their meal. Sure. You know? Um, one of the most disappointing parts about it is you get somebody that comes in and they could have had the most amazing meal in the world, but one thing they didn't like, and they'll throw a one-star review at you because of that one thing, not taking into consideration that their favorite song came on the radio or that their waitress was the nicest woman in the world. You know, they'll, they'll flip from five to one in a heartbeat. I like how you turned one lament to your advantage. It was a t-shirt that you had very early on. I walked in with my son who really wanted a sugar shack donut. And it was this... (laughs) woman who had complained on social media that there were too many hipsters or too many people in line <laughs> waiting for your artisanal donut. So we ended up at the Hardee's on the Boulevard. And you put that quote on your first T-shirts. I remember you gave it, me one. What, what did it say? Um, I'm not going to remember it verbatim, but it was a woman that was very upset because her and her husband tried to come in early. I think it was a Sunday morning. Uh, we had lines into the parking lot. She said, my husband hates hipster, trendy places. So now we're at Hardee's on the Boulevard. Uh, and I did. I immediately took it, quoted it, threw it on a T-shirt. <laughs> she went nuts. I mean, I got calls, emails. She was, you know, telling me I had to retract the statement. You didn't use her name. No, no, I didn't tell anybody. So the who free did speech it. is one directional. She's allowed to go and say that on Yelp or elsewhere, but you're not allowed to. Yeah, she use it was, anonymously. She was very upset that I anonymously put this shirt out there, and you know, at one point, I kind of laughed and said, "Well, I'll give you two free shirts." <laughs> Uh, She didn't like that. And that kind of ended it. I I don't know that I ever heard from her again there. But, you know, it's funny. That was five years ago. We sold out of those shirts very quickly, did a second round, sold out. And then five years later, it's probably still my most requested shirt. Um, We've talked about maybe doing another run of it, but we just haven't done it again. So maybe one day. But are you of the mind that that no press is bad press? No, I think there's bad press. (laughs) You know, it's I'm of the mind that exposure is good. I just try to always make sure it's good exposure, you know, and I don't always succeed. I mean, we've had bad moments in in press and we've had accidental moments in press and um, it's hard to tell. But sometimes emotions do play into it. You know, I've had customers that I've told them on Facebook or on other various platforms, don't come back. You know, you're not the customer we want. And I'm saying it either to protect my staff or I'm saying it out of just instant reaction to emotions. And I don't know whether those help us or hurt us. I remember that uh, all of downtown near the Capitol building was so excited when you opened up an outpost Mm -hmm. uh, down near Shaco Slip. Um, And it was uh, very svelte, very, you know, corporate friendly. People could walk in. Um, You know, I used it whenever I had business downtown. It was between the financial district and the the capital, you know, the political district. But you were very quick to realize when it wasn't working that you need to shut that down and reinvest Mm -hmm. the money back in expansion elsewhere. Tell us how that worked in your head. Yeah, that was sort of a new concept. We had decided that we were going to do this little outpost. Um, The downtown business workers, the nine to fivers, were not coming to Sugar Shack. Uh, Maybe in the morning on their way in, they would pick up some donuts, but for the most part, they weren't coming to us during the day, and we were trying to figure out how to capitalize on that. So we put this little coffee shop downtown that had our donuts. You know, we cooked them in our original location, and then we would take them down there, um, blank, basically no glaze or anything on it, and we would re, uh, you know, warm them, um, whether it was uh, proofer or hot box, you know, heat them back up essentially, and then we would decorate them fresh on the spot and fill a case with them. Um, the quality was still really good, but we just never were able to gain the traction. And I think what it was is it didn't, it didn't have the same excitement. You know, you didn't walk in and hear the mixer whipping the dough around the bowl. You know, you didn't have the, the nonstop lines out the door the same way. So while people still enjoyed it, it just never had the hype that the original location had. So the ancillary on that is a Dunkin' and a Starbucks can make a location like that work by just turning a ton of coffee and Correct. lighter pastries. So did you maybe think maybe I need to contort into that. I mean, I, I'd like to use this as an opening into coffee because you were the first. I remember the, was it the Yama cold brew drip mm-hmm. system that yep. that you had? looked very Breaking Bad, kind of like a beaker <laughs> thing. And I was like, wow, I can watch this for uh, for days. Uh, it looks like a you know high school chemistry apparatus and everything. And when I drink it, it, it spazzed me out. I saw the good Lord's eyes and I craved. <laughs> I was writing my book with your donuts. <laughs> right. It was a, it was a crazy thing. Like in my weakest moments, I would go and have, um, you know, your cold brew, which was exquisite. And I'd have one of these donuts and you'd have all these specialties. There'd be like a seasonal peach thing. Sometimes you'd have it with a 
Bailey's Irish Cream. There was one that was like a Harry Potter Quidditch donut. Um, It was all over the place. Uh, But I was sad when that one closed, but I wondered if it was going to allow you to pivot into more aggressively selling coffee. Tell me about coffee. It did. I mean, one of the things that we learned from that location is that people want coffee more than just 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. You know, we would say, actually, that location was probably one of our biggest sellers for afternoon coffee with the employees that would walk over from the banks. So when we made the decision to shut that location down, we said, look, we have to get into the coffee game here in Richmond. We were using a great coffee out of Baltimore. We had Zeke's. Um, and they were a, a smaller roaster that we had some family connections with, and they were able to get us exactly what we wanted. But we realized that we could do it ourselves. We realized that we could make a really good coffee and that we could push it and become a competitor on that market as well. And to your point, I mean, that's what Dunkin's did. That's what Starbucks focuses on and always has done. And even Krispy Kreme now is pushing harder and putting espresso machines in. Um, So we took the opportunity to start to think about how we could roast ourselves right here in Richmond and and provide for all of our own stores and then really sort of cater uh, our coffee beans to what we wanted. You know, we make a coffee specifically for the cold brew that you're referencing and we make different ones specifically for different drinks. Um, you know, we even have a, a one we call a second punch that is about twice as much caffeine. And it's for that guy that says, I don't care about the taste. I'm going to fill it with cream and sugar anyways, but I want something that's going to light me on fire, you know? And so we catered to that. Um, but we went out, we, we researched it we bought a really nice coffee roaster from Diedrich Roasters, uh, and set up our own roastery, you know, here in Richmond, we had a guy that moved up from Mexico to start helping us. And he was going to come for a few months just to help. And then he never left, you know, he moved his family up and left Mexico behind and he still lives here. He roasts, we actually moved the roastery. Um, he's out in Powhatan now roasting, um, but he's happy and he's with his family and producing coffee now for Sugar Shack. What's your comparative advantage in coffee? Is it is it taste? Is it the accompaniment with the donut? Is it experience? Because look, I kind of have to settle with Starbucks, right? <laughs> it's ubiquitous. I can show up everywhere and get this really, really predictable product. And Duncan iterates into that too. You're coming out. Did you find, I mean, was that a personality match? I mean, what is your ultimate hook to up coffee as a fraction of your revenue? Well, I don't think we were ever being considered serious in the coffee game, which to me, it almost like hurt because we had amazing coffee. I had all these really good baristas that came to work for the company from around Richmond. I remember one singer. Remember her? Um, she worked at the Param location. I know. She I had these tattoos her on her arm. She she had she had this dream of going off and singing. Julia. Oh my yeah, gosh. I had, to, I had to refer to Tanya there for the name on that. So yeah, Julia actually got a record contract. Go Julia. Uh, yeah. So she she's gone, and uh, I think she's doing music and coffee in D.C. now. Uh, but you're right. I mean, we we br- we brought in all these very artistic sort of uh, eccentric baristas from town. But then we still couldn't get taken seriously as a coffee shop, even with the people that we had. And we had really expensive coffee equipment. And, you know, we brought in the Yama. I I believe we were the first ones in Richmond to to do the Yama cold drip towers, not to do cold brew, but specifically to do the Yama. Um, So this was sort of a way to kind of get people to take us a little bit more seriously. And I think that's what I wanted. It wasn't about having a better coffee because Zeke's is incredible. But being able to tell people we roasted this 48 hours ago right down the street I think that's what made it where people started to take us seriously. And we actually started to win awards. You know, we won Best Coffee in Richmond. Uh, You know, we started to be recognized as coffee, um, which is what we were lacking. This is a hard coffee town. If you think about Lamplighter and Black Hand and some of the other players that are, you know, Blanchard's. Right. There's so much good coffee It's it's punches above its weight here. So for you guys to come in late in the game, where do you source most of the coffee from? Uh, so we have a bunch of different countries that we we bring in. There's a guy named Mark uh, McKee out of Seattle. Uh, he has a business called Passionate Harvest. And basically what he does is he goes and finds these farms, whether it's a women-run farm or whether it's an all-organic or whether it's a farm that uses their profits to build schools. This That's what he does. So he goes out and does all the goodwill research and finds these farms. And then he only buys those beans and brings them to America and then sources them out to smaller independent roasters like us. Uh, so, you know, we have Ethiopians, we have Sumatras, Colombians, Brazilian, you know, we bring in all these different beans from around the world. Uh, and Ben, uh, our roaster that, you know, I said moved up here from Mexico, he's been doing it for about 16 years now. He runs the whole program and makes sure that we have consistently good coffee at all times. But for us, it wasn't about beating the other guys. We never expected to be better than Lamplighter, and we aren't. I mean, Lamplighter, Rostovs, Blanchards, these guys, they're the best in town. We just wanted to be on the map. 
that was it for us. So your mind works like this, and you, you were an econ major, right? I studied econ and business at Randolph-Macon. At Randolph-Macon. So that sack of coffee beans, the aromatic sack of coffee beans that you <laughs> brought me, walk me through what lights you up in terms of how you think of that sack If it's if it, at the retail level. It's ground up. What can you extract from that in terms of value? I mean, I've always asked this question. We had a dude that opened up Ironclad Coffee. Yeah. And I yeah. asked him this, and it's They're become great almost like a meaning of life question. Do you, in a perfect world, would you extract all these cold brew cups out of that, just drip coffee? What works for you profitability-wise the best? I don't look at it on such a fine-tuned microscope, I think, the way is what you're thinking of. And the guys at Ironclad are becoming the best in town if they're not already the best in town because they're so tuned in to every roast and how to drink it. Um, and, and the others do that too, don't get me wrong, but I think I think Ironclad has sort of jumped to the front of the pack with that. That's not how we look at it. You know, we look at it as when I've got 600 customers a day that walk in the door and I have to appeal to 600 customers a day, how do I do that within our market and our economy? So, you know, we have the light roast for the guy that likes the earthier, um, you know, I don't want to say trendier, but just that sort of more modern coffee. Uh, you know, we've got the medium roast and the dark roast for your everyday coffee drinkers. We've got the espresso for the guys, you know, that want really strong coffee. But we're not trying to fine tune it and say that you have to use this bean and it has to be done in a siphon filter, you know, or you have to use this specific one cold brew only. Now, we do make a cold brew one, but you could still drink it as a cup of coffee and it's delicious. So then is it just table stakes to have good coffee at a premier donut shop? It's not It's not a margin aspiration for you? No, I think it's, it's just to get us, like I said, get us on the map and to sort of elevate our game because we don't want to be the donut shop that just has coffee. We want to be the donut and coffee shop, you know, that we have good of both. Ian Kelly of Sugar Shack Donuts talked to us about the truck, the elusive Sugar Shack truck, all <laughs> self-contained. I mean, it has its own grease trap, too. Yeah. We actually stopped doing the truck, I think, since the last time I talked oh, to no. you. Um, food trucks are probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Really? It, it is. Anybody that can make it in the food truck business as a full-time job is a trooper and a soldier in themselves. I mean, it is all day, every day, hot or freezing cold. You know, there's no way to properly air condition those things. They're sweaty. You know, you don't make a lot of money on them. Um, so don't let me make it sound terrible because there is a lot of reward that comes from it. We did it because we thought it was a really good marketing idea. You know, we thought that if we had a truck out on the street, you know, blaze orange and the big logo going around, we could start to do more events that we don't get to do offsite events and cook fresh donuts offsite. Uh, and we did. I mean, we did fundraisers. Um, we did one that was for a, a little girl that had cancer that needed to raise money for some of her um, medical expenses. And I think we raised like $3 shy of $15,000 in about six hours from that truck, donated it all to her. Um, we've done weddings with them. We've done corporate events, you know, festivals, music shows. But ultimately not worth it. Not worth it, you know, and I think what it was is you have to find a special kind of person, an employee uh, that will go stand on a truck for eight hours in the heat. You know, you got the fryers and everything on it and it's just hot outside. So they're going to sweat for eight hours. There's not really anywhere to go take a break. It's crowded. You don't have a restroom. So wherever you are, you have to hope that there's a restroom to use. Uh, and it's difficult, you know, and, and you go out and you do an event, you're lucky to make a 5% margin on the day. But then mm -hmm. at the end of it, you know, your staff's not thrilled. They're not, you know, they got paid, but they would rather be in an air-conditioned shop, you know. There is that interesting tertiary peer of yours, uh, Mrs. Yoder, as you hear about her a lot. She's <laughs> at the south of the James Farmer's Market on Saturdays. I think that's that's ends in the fall, but uh, she comes out in the spring to the parking lot at Westbury Pharmacy. And I believe it's a Mennonite family that makes just mm -hmm. one sourdough uh, enormous uh, donut out of a truck. Correct. And uh, that seems to have an appeal for them. And it, it, and it works fantastic. And actually, you know, my wife, Tanya, was just talking maybe two weeks ago about her and my daughter went and got them and how good they were. It's a different brand and it's a different market. And again, just like Country Style was the pioneers of the donuts in Richmond, Yoder's was the pioneer of the donut off of a food truck in Richmond. But like you said, they do one flavor uh, they make it all right there on the truck. You know, they fry it. You know, it's a, it's a very different process than us with how much equipment and time it took us to do it. They do it very differently. Uh, and it's sort of a cult following. 
you know, because you can only get it on the food truck days. You can only get it if you find them at Westbury or I think they're at Great Big Greenhouse um, occasionally on Thursdays. So people seek it out, you know, but you don't necessarily see them at the weddings and the concerts and the, the venues. Talk to me about labor. I know this was a frustration at the very beginning when I met you and you, you would you would be kind of emphatic about it on social media. You put a ton of sweat equity, you risk capital, collateral, everything in this. And the people that you brought in initially, so many people, I hear this universally, would call in sick, would call in, yeah. would kind of flake out. You couldn't keep them. People obviously have substance abuse issues. They have alcohol issues. They have family issues. And they would not uh, covet a position like this because ultimately you're paying them a wage. You know, there, there are various excuses on it. But fast forward to the here and now where we're below a 4% unemployment mm-hmm. rate. And I hear from every restaurant person that the biggest thing that keeps them up at night is the difficulty of hiring and keeping workers. Talk to me. Staffing is the hardest part of this business venture that I've done, you know, and the culinary world, like you said, you've got the addictions, you've got all the other different problems that just are prevalent in the restaurant industry. Right now, staffing is just impossible. And the positive on this that I do want to point out is I've got some of the same staff from five and a half years ago that still work with the company today that I wouldn't trade for the world. You know, I've got a handful of people that we're here today because of them. Simultaneously, it is very difficult to grow this company or to grow any company right now because you can't hire people. You know, unemployment rates being as low as they are, everybody is now paying, you know, four more dollars per hour than they used to pay. We already considered ourselves one of the best payers well above minimum wage, and then now everybody's up to that four or five dollars. Um, you know, everybody has upped their benefits, uh, vacation time, and, and we try to do the same to compete. But restaurant markets are saturated. You know, the kind of employee that you would hire in this business, they can go next door and get a job tomorrow if they're not happy. And they do. A lot of people will job bounce and leverage it. Um, Charlottesville's the worst. You know, we're in Charlottesville right now. We just opened a few months ago out there, a Sugar Shack and a Luther Burger. And we've probably employed 20 people. And we've probably had 80 employees in four months. And it's, these people will come in and take a job. They'll come to one or two shifts, maybe get a paycheck. And then you might never talk to them again or hear from them again. You know, no What is that a reflection why. of the tightness of the job market? You have all these other restaurants. You have an, a highly educated upscale area. They have to come in. It's more inconvenient for them to be there. Mm-hmm. I always want, I always wanted to kind of get my finger on the pulse of this. Well, It's so easy to get a job in Charlottesville right now. Just like it's, you know, I think Richmond's the same, but Charlottesville we're finding is a very different beast. If you're a cook in Charlottesville, you could probably walk into any restaurant in Charlottesville and get a job. And not only can you get a job, you're probably going to get it at three or four more dollars an hour than you would have gotten it, you know, two years ago or a year ago or whatever the time is. So what we're seeing is that the employees will come in and if the slightest little thing intrigues them about another job they can just be gone in seconds and you, you just won't see them. So we've got people from Richmond driving out there to fill shifts. You know, I, I've personally, I was out there last Saturday for about 14 hours working. Um, we've got the manager that's running the shop right now is a girl from Richmond that's 19 years old and she moved there just to run this shop. And we have other employees that do the same thing at other shops. You know, it's, it's tough to find people that want to work and especially want to work in a business that's not easy. It's physically demanding. So we're at that fork in the road where we get to with um, a, a lot of people in the restaurant and retail business where at some point you kind of ask yourself, is it worth it for me to insist on all of this quality assurance and employee personality assurance and whatnot? I can always franchise. I can always license out the name. I can always listen to the siren calls of investment bankers and sell the IP of Sugar Shack Donuts. Talk to me about the appeal of that versus the peril. I go back and forth on that one. I've had days where I say, let's franchise this thing tomorrow. I've had days where I say, you know, let's just keep organically growing and keep it private. I don't know the right answer to it. And it's so hard to try to pick something because you don't know what's going to happen next year. You don't know whether it's going to be harder to find employees, easier to find employees. Um, You know, you don't know what next big competitor is coming. You know, Duck Donuts came out of nowhere and went from one little location in the Outer Banks. And, you know, they've they've probably breached 100 at this point. I don't know. But uh, 
it's hard for me to make a decision on where we want to go. I know where I am right now is with it being so difficult to find staff, I like slowing down and just focusing on what we have and maybe putting a little bit more attention into Luther Burger. I, I, I'm sure you've seen that we've been growing Luther I'd Burger. I'd like to ask you about Luther Burger. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the, the name. I don't think many people realize this. Uh, I think your son's name is Luther. No. <laughs> but let me give a transition to it. Here, here's a hint. Here and now. I promise to love faithfully. <laughs> You're all I need. Go ahead, sir. Um, Luther Burger is a concept that I came up with a few years ago uh, that I wasn't sure whether it was going to be a Sugar Shack thing or not, and it just sort of ended up that way. Uh, there's this old sort of story, this this myth or wives' tale that Luther Vandross one night was cooking burgers at home and had finished making a few burgers, and then he went to get the buns, and he didn't have any. And the story goes that all he had was some donuts sitting around, and he said, ah, it's bread. So he put oh the burgers God. on the donuts, and the Luther burger was born. And, you know, it's one of those things that you never see it in restaurants, occasionally maybe a baseball park or, like, you know, some offshoot bar and grill in Podunk, you know, will have a Luther burger, but most people don't pay attention to it or it never got any traction. And what better place to do it than a donut shop, you know? And I kept thinking back to the original idea of Sugar Shack where I wanted to do burgers and it just made sense. It seemed like the right time and the right place and the right way to do it. And so we did it. I mean, we put together this concept for a fast casual uh, burger joint that if you want it on a regular bun, you can get it. But if you want it on donuts, you can get that too. And it just took off. You know, it's it's. And you talk about your raw material exposure. You'd gone from kind of flour and eggs and maybe dairy <laughs> and glaze to the unhedged world of beef prices. You're right. I mean, you asked for that at a time of Five Guys Burgers. Yeah. Was there opportunity for you? I thought there was opportunity. You know, I look at Richmond and we've got some great burger places. We really do. You know, um, Burger Batch is still one of my favorite places and they do an incredible burger. Um, but I'm from St. Pete, Florida. And we have this little hole in the wall picnic table only place called Ted Peters. And it is a fish smokehouse that also sells burgers. It is the cheapest, most simple, best burger I've ever had in my life. And I talk about it. Like it's that last dying meal of mine. It's what I want, you know? And every time I, we talk about going to Florida, in my head, it's I got to go to Ted Peters. You know, my wife's mother was down there on vacation and brought me a Ted Peters shirt because everybody in my family knows how much Ted Peters wow. means to me. Um, so I, I looked at it and said, this is what Richmond is missing. We're missing the alternative to McDonald's or Five Guys or Red Robin or Burger King, you know, that's that's just slightly above them on price that is above them on quality, but it's just simple, no thrills. And so that's what we came up with. You know, we came up with this smash burger that is more about the fresh tomato, the fresh lettuce, onions, a sauce that we make in-house that, you know, one of my partners, James Henderson, came up with. It's phenomenally good. Uh, and how do we do it all for about five bucks? And here we are, you know. Um, but from there, it took off where we, you know, my wife wanted a turkey burger. What do you use, beef from Chernobyl? How do you source <laughs> it to sell $5 burger? You know, beef's not as expensive anymore as I think people think it is. In fact, we even, uh, next week, we switch uh, to a local source. Mm. Um, we found a, a farm that's going to bring us in beef at a, a, a surprisingly lower cost than what we were already paying, and it's now all grass-fed source right here in Virginia. Mm. Um uh, that's it's not as expensive as people think it is. The expensive part was going vegan. Uh, yeah, tell me about the donuts going vegan. And I, I there are rumors that you use like a cauliflower derivative <laughs> or no. a chickpea thing. How do you make a no. luscious donut without egg? That's like the holy grail. Yeah, I mean, we egg and milk are the two things that we had to replace when we went vegan, and it was a battle with you know me myself, um, some of the investors, and. You know, half of the people were like, this is a great idea. Half of the people were said, I'm unsure. You know, I don't know what we're going to do. So we actually kind of pulled a fast one on everybody. And for about two months, uh, this guy named Mike Goins that, that's been with us since day one, he came out with a, re a vegan recipe and didn't tell anybody. He just came up with this vegan recipe and we started running it. And all it really was was our recipe minus milk and eggs. Um he started putting it out in her mouth. I'd like to cut in and tell people, not by way of plug or anything, but you cannot taste the difference. Again, <laughs> I've consumed hundreds of these donuts, and I didn't skip a beat. didn't taste rubbery. It didn't taste—you you didn't miss anything. It tasted just as emulsified and pillowy and everything. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know what you have going on in that skunk works 
Well, and that's the thing. I mean, we ran. He it won't for tell months. you once. No, I, I know what he did, but you know, he likes to keep his secrets his secrets. Um, we did it for months, and we didn't tell anybody. And you know, obviously, if I had added ingredients, I probably would have told people for fear that somebody would have eaten something they were allergic to. But all we did is took our same one and removed ingredients. Um, you know, so for months this goes on, right? And we're selling them, and I'm kind of hinting at people, like asking, "Would you buy these donuts if they were vegan?" And it's funny because people would literally sit there and eat one of these donuts that they think is our regular recipe and talk about how good it is, and they're like, "Yeah, but if it's vegan, I don't want it." And we would just laugh about it. And so finally, after months of success with people not realizing the difference, we said, all right, we're going to go for this. We're going to take a risk on it. And we're going to just go full-fledged vegan on our dough. Um, not our cake donuts, just our yeast donuts. And it worked. Bro, Safine, you just, in one foul swoop, cut out a ton of exposure to dairy and egg. Gone. Yes. Without yes. compromising the product. I don't think it compromises it one bit. In fact, we've done tests where we do time tests. We, you know, we'll cook the old school recipe that we had versus a new school recipe, and we'll let them run next to each other. Same donut, you know, we'll just glaze them both. We'll run them next to each other, and after an hour, we'll eat one. After two hours, we'll eat another one, and you know, we'll test it and see which one goes further until it's at a point where it's no longer good. And you know, the vegan ones were going eight hours, and they were still delicious. Whereas the other ones, maybe after four, they'd start to dry or firm a little bit. You know, because we like to tell everybody eat our donuts what, within what the first it? three is, hours. Is it soylent green, plutonium, <laughs> no, uranium, no. cesium thirty two? No, we just our process of making donuts is so difficult, and there's so very few people that do it in the United States. Country style does it, but you know, it's a multi stage process that takes about four hours. And I think removing the the eggs and the milk didn't matter. I think it's about the process we use. Now, I think if you were to go take a more modern technique of donut making where you just make it really quick in an hour and a half, I bet our donuts would taste terrible. I think we just figured out how to make the process work without the milk and the eggs and still get that fluffy, pillowy love. In closing, Ian Kelly of Sugar Shack Donuts, in the minute or so we have left, any plans to expand nationally and maybe go public? And could I get stock? <laughs> um, no plans as of now. You know, we want to continue to grow the company, but it needs to be at the right pace. Uh, you know, with staffing issues the way they are, I'm going to hold off a little bit, and we're going to just focus on, uh, you know, our growth with Luther Burger and the success of that. Uh, and, you know, try to get back to our roots a little bit more, too. We've talked about trying to do some more community events again. Um, so I think that's where we're at now is let's just focus on what we've got. And then see where it takes us. You know, it's been five years and we've done a lot. And you finally come on this slumming show. I'm so grateful to you. You know, it's times like these you learn to love again. <laughs> well, thank you, Robin. I'm, I'm happy that you called me and asked me. You are the man. Ian Kelly of Sugar Shack Donuts. Thank you for joining us. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this show on NPR One and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. We are yeast-raised, flash-fried, sprinkled with all sorts of thought leadership. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Please.